the meeting of the Organizational Development Standing Committee of the City of Richmond City Council is now called to order. Mr. Clerk, if you would uh, please read the Chamber Emergency Evacuation Announcement. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exits to the left or right front of the council chamber or the east or west stairwell outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use elevators or escalators. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot bordered by Clay 8th and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually and hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. And for the record, Madam Chair, all members of the committee are in attendance except for, with the exception of Member Larson and Vice Chair Hilbert. Thank you, Mr. Clark. You do um, have a quorum. Thank you. Um, I just would like to uh, thank everybody for your patience. Uh, I know that you probably went up to the fifth floor where we had initially scheduled the meeting to be held because we had not completed the full installation of technology here in the chambers. But in order to better address concerns and possible public, uh, better accommodate public uh, uh, access uh, to the meeting, we moved the uh, meeting to this location. Uh, the technology still has not been fully implemented, and so while you may have some sound effects with our speakers, we still have work to do, but we wanted to better accommodate uh, public in terms of attendance of the meeting. One of the other things that uh, we will not have uh, access to because, again, still installing the technology is a visual presentation uh, of any of the uh, uh, items on the agenda for this evening. However, there will be hard copy of the document available uh, or documents available that will be discussed. So, again, thank you. Uh, our move was merely to attempt to better accommodate public access uh, to the meeting. We do uh, plan and fully anticipate full implementation of our technology by uh, Monday's meeting. With that, uh, Mr. Chair, uh, let's handle the approval of the minutes. If there are no amendments or corrections to the Monday, August 5th, 2019 Organizational Development St Standing Committee minutes, those minutes will stand approved as presented. Thank you. Those minutes have been approved. Thank you, Mr. Ch Mr. Clark. We'll now move on to the Navy Hill presentation from Hunden Strategic Partners and Davenport and Company. Good afternoon, President Newbill and distinguished members of Richmond City Council. My name is Leonard Sledge, and I have the privilege of serving as the City of Richmond's Director of Economic Development. During my economic development career, I've been fortunate to work on a wide variety of projects, ranging from the adaptive reuse of historic buildings, mixed-use redevelopment, retail, office, large-scale logistics and distribution, industrial warehousing projects, workforce development, entrepreneurship, and several other areas in between. I have a great passion for the work that I do, knowing that at the end of the day, it helps communities thrive and results in meaningful jobs for residents. 
And I do believe that the Navy Hill project presents a tremendous opportunity for the city of Richmond and its residents. And I'm thankful, very thankful, to be a part of this exciting process. We welcome the opportunity, the administration, to continue meeting with you, uh, to learn more about the project, to discuss the project. Because again, it is a truly transformational project for Richmonders. And without further ado, I do have the pleasure of representing the administration to introduce to you our presenters for today, Mr. David Rose of Davenport and Company and Mr. Rob Hunden of Hunden Strategic Partners. Mr. Rose is the Senior Vice President and Co-Head of Public Finance for Davenport and Company. For more than 30 years, Mr. Rose has served as a financial advisor to public sector clients in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia and across the United States. For 20 of those years, Mr. Rose has served as the City of Richmond's financial advisor, helping to guide the city through multiple credit rating and upgrades. His experience includes economic development, general infrastructure financing, schools, water and sewer, utilities, local and regional jails, and economic development strategies. I would also like to welcome Mr. Rose's colleague, Mr. James Sanderson, who is also with us today. Also with us is Mr. Rob Hunden. Mr. Hunden is the president and CEO of Hunden Strategic Partners. Mr. Hunden's firm specializes in the economics of unique real estate projects, including sports complexes, restaurants, hotels, meeting, conference, convention facilities, and entertainment districts. He has provided economic development finance and planning expertise for hundreds of development projects in both large and small markets across the country. Mr. Rose will be giving you an, up, an overview, excuse me, of the fiscal and economic impact of the Navy Hill project, and Mr. Hunden will be presenting an overview of his independent analysis of the Navy Hill project. And with that, I'd like to ask Mr. Rose to please come up at this time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Madam President, members of council, pleased to be here this evening. Um, as Leonard indicated, I will begin, um, try to answer any questions that you have, uh, and hopefully this will be the start of an education process uh, that will ultimately lead you to being able to feel comfortable in making the kinds of decisions that you're being tasked with over time. With that said, uh, and the lack of the screen behind you, I want to make sure everyone's got a copy of our handout to begin with. So if you don't, let me know, and we'll make sure we have that. Everyone have a copy? Okay. So. Yes. All righty. Thank you. So if I could, um, Madam President, let me just start with page one and not take for granted who Davenport is and why we're here. Uh, that said, um, some of you may realize that uh, we are domiciled in Richmond right here. We are part and parcel of the city and have been for over 150 years. We are arguably Virginia's oldest and largest investment firm, and I have the good fortune of being here now for several decades. That said, um, our practice in working with local governments and others is primarily here in the mid-Atlantic southeastern region, and we are uh, financial advisor to some 500 different local governments and entities over 15 states. So this is what we do, 
And that said, we are here as advisors to you. We represent all of the city of Richmond, and that is hopefully uh, the spirit in which you will hear the things that we were asked to evaluate. Since 1998, when we came across to, to Davenport, some of my colleagues and I, we've had the good fortune of doing some $64 billion of financings, including, of course, uh, the city. The next bullet point there is just some of the local governments we've had the opportunity to work with. That includes Charlotte and Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Baltimore, Savannah, Raleigh, and here in Virginia, over two dozen cities, let alone counties, uh, and that includes those that you can see there, amongst them Alexandria, Lynchburg, Roanoke, etc. Finally, we have a financial fiduciary responsibility to be sure that anything and everything we say is putting your best interest first. And that's how we looked at all of this project from the day we started. So if you would, um, on page two, let me just go over for a few moments the way in which we came to be here today. And that is, we did some various research. We looked at the proposal and their work product of the Navy Hill Development Group. We also interacted with Rob Hunden and his firm, Hunden Strategic Partners, and they did the independent third-party analysis. So what do I mean by that? This mayor made a decision early on that rather than relying on the best interests of others and developers and what have you, he wanted an expert third-party opinion so that we could verify and validate the information that was being provided to us. So Hunden Strategic Partners was selected, and they did their work, as you could see, going back well over a year. All of that was reviewed by us, as well as a variety of interviews, and plus our own basic investigations based upon our experiences, as I said, with places like the Cincinnati's and the Pittsburgh's, which I have the good fortune of working with on a regular basis. So page three, what is the Navy Hill project? And again, I'm doing this in part, especially since there's no screen behind you, Madam President, so if you will bear with me, let me just list some of those things that really do compose the project as it is now presented. It includes an unprecedented $1.3 billion in private investment spread over what will be new office, new retail, new commercial, new residential, and what is expected to be the largest new hotel in Richmond, 541 rooms plus all sorts of other amenities. It will also include a new GRTC bus transit center. It will also, of course, be a new city-owned arena on the same site that is right now the Coliseum, and it will be the largest such in Virginia at something north of 17,000 seats and fully modernized, as you would expect, of something like this. There will be a renovated historic Blues Armory also coming by virtue of private funding. That Blues Armory, if I think I saw it the other day on the, in the Richmond Times-Dispatched, 
It looked like it had been shuttered for many years, and I think, again, that is going to be brought back to life as part of this overall project. I mentioned earlier there'll be a hotel. That's that 500-plus rooms. I think at latest it was roughly 541 rooms. There will be walkability and infrastructure and streetscape upgrades that effectively will create a brand-new neighborhood and actually connect neighborhoods that right now are basically islands apart from each other by virtue of this project. This project is also geared to help retain and attract some of our best talent in the city. It is also there as an empowerment project with regard to many new jobs, both full and part-time. With all of those things, it's going to generate an estimated billion dollars. That's a, that's a hard number to get your heads around, but as we've done it and we looked at it, that billion dollars is after, that's surplus, that's after paying for debt service on bonds we're going to talk about, as well as some of the additional costs the city will incur in that area because there will be a very vibrant community there. So that billion dollars is over 30 years, and the mayor has recommended that half of those dollars, $500 million, go to public schools. So one of the things that we wanted to be sure that people recognized is that this in no way is taking away from schools, but is adding to the dollars available for schools. In addition, there is an investment in public safety, public works, other core cities that are very much part and parcel of your annual CIP that you have and you vote on every spring. That's to be $340 million over that period of time. In addition, an unprecedented level of new housing and opportunities for those most needy. That is to the tune of roughly $150 million. And then finally, with the billion dollars as proposed, there is an investment in art, history, and culture of some $10 million. Those numbers roughly add up to that billion-dollar range. And again, what you're going to see in the next few minutes, I'm going to be talking in orders of magnitude because the numbers are so large and so significant. Then, as I mentioned, thousands of jobs. VCU did an independent review of that. Those are not our numbers. But again, relative to anything, that this city has seen, be it the old Midwest FACO, now CoStar, the numbers are totally, totally larger than any of those by a multiple. 480 affordable housing units, and when more, that would be in the pipeline. And then finally, here just for this, $300 million alone in minority business enterprise. That is, just to give you a sense of that, that is the equivalent one project of the last 10 years of minority business dollars. One project alone, this 10 years, comes to roughly that amount. So if I could, let me move on then on to how the project is to be funded. This is page four. There are two primary sources for this project. There is the private development and there's publicly issued non-recourse revenue bonds. And I'll get into what I mean by some of those terms in a moment. 
But let me go back to the private investment side, because this is really, for us, and in our review, what made all the difference. The city in the modern era has never seen anything remotely close to 900-plus million that is programmed right up front to be utilized and employed in this area, this financing area that we'll talk about. It is, again, a multiple of anything that's been before you or prior councils. In my 20 years, I would argue to say that all of the economic development projects put together probably don't come out to $900 million in one project from the private sector. Again, I don't use the words that easily, but it's really extraordinary. And what that is, if you would, is development money that is local, it is national, and I understand is international. And that money is going to be there to be actually used to build the housing, to build that hotel, to help renovate and build, rebuild, if you would, the Blues Armory, and to build that housing that right now none of that exists. All of this, this is the critical point here, if I could, all of this are new dollars that are going to be utilized to take care of that second part, and that is the repayment of some $350 million of bonds that will be used to actually build the new arena. Now, how is this bonds issue going to be done? It's going to be done, we call it non-recourse. What do I mean by that? What that means is that, unlike many other projects this city and other cities have seen, it will not have the backing of the city directly as in a general obligation or indirectly as in a moral obligation. And it doesn't need that. And the reason it doesn't need that is this $900 million that actually could grow to a billion three over the next four to five years will be substantial enough to allow all the various things I just talked about being built. And if all those things being built will produce all that new revenue, that is what's going to pay for these bonds. So one of the things I would recommend, Madam President, if I could, since I'm not a lawyer and I have no background in law, is between the city attorney's office and ORIC, which is the outside legal counsel, I would strongly suggest that this city council and the commission and the other folks as well ask for individual meetings with those folks from the legal side so the things that I'm talking about today, the things that I'm saying, you can actually see in what is almost a thousand pages of writing of safeguards that, again, also unprecedented, that will safeguard the city that these dollars are indeed there and these dollars will be there so that you can feel assured that the only way this arena can get built is if those dollars are indeed there to be built simultaneously, the housing and the, and the, the, the hotel and the Blues Armory. So with all that being said, hopefully you'll be able to see that this is all being done at one time. It's not as if we are asking you or we've been asked to say build that and then hopefully some private money will come. 
to the contrary. That private money must be there programmed in in order for these folks to sell these bonds. That's what makes this project so special. So page five, how are they going to be repaid? Well, I've just said they're going to be repaid with all sorts of new dollars. What do I mean by those new dollars? Well, as I said a moment ago, that new convention center hotel, that effectively new armory, the renovation really, but it's effectively new, the residential, the commercial, office space, all of those things that are new, they're going to produce significant net new tax revenues. We don't have a dime of that right now. And if this doesn't get built, there'll be no net new tax revenues. And where are those coming from? From real estate, from meals tax, from sales tax, from lodging, from BPOL, from a myriad of different taxes that all are coming that right now do not exist from those new things that will be created. In addition, there will be, within this overall district, some incremental new dollars over and above the dollars the city currently gets on the existing real estate of properties that are there. And we're going to go into, in a few moments, why that's going to be the case. But that's where these dollars are coming from. So again, I want to emphasize that if we do not get this $900 million, we can't get the arena built, and we can't, in turn, pay those debts back. And outside investors who are sophisticated will have to feel every bit as good as we do that those dollars will indeed be there to build the project. Otherwise, they're not going to invest in these bonds. Having said all that, we believe that that is the biggest safeguard you've got, and that is that money has got to be there, and if it's not, these bonds can't be sold. So from that perspective on page six, we just wanted you to know the structure, and that is that these bonds will be going through the city of Richmond's EDA. It is what we call a pass-through, and while I'm not a lawyer, I've been doing this now almost 40 years. What I can say is, under Virginia law, that's just the nature of the way these kinds of financings are done. Once again, from my perspective, I would encourage you to make sure that the city attorney's office, as well as ORIC, will provide you the necessary safeguards to understand why, if there are indeed shortfalls, in this tax district, it's not going to fall back upon the city. In other words, it will not impact the city's debt capacity and will not in any way curtail us. But rather, what we're going to show you in the next few minutes is we think the dollars will be so great that this project is very much a win-win for all parties involved. So let me go to page 7 and the next several pages, which touches on the incremental financing area. And that is basically here in the next few slides. But let me start with page 7. It looks like that orange is eating up that blue. That orange basically is showing that this tax financing area, this incremental financing area, if you would, right now, two-thirds of that area is tax-exempt. The city gets not a dime of revenues from that area. And the goal here is effectively to turn that orange 
into blue, which is the taxable area. This overall area, if you would then, again, basically the taxable properties are a little over $2 billion right now, and the tax-exempt properties are valued at almost a billion five. So we're losing, in effect, in the core of our downtown, a whole area that produces effectively no dollars to the city. So on page eight, let's look at that a little bit closer. And you can see there the black is the increment financing area, but within it, there's a whole lot of green. And that green are all those tax-exempt parcels. And then you'll notice there, if you look closely, there is some lettering and numbers, mostly lettering, that are tied to a number of those parcels. That is what I was talking about earlier when I said those parcels would be those parcels that would go from being tax-exempt to being taxable. The city would actually be paid to sell those parcels to the developer. If the developer does not do what it's supposed to do, the city will actually get the dollars back and it will get those parcels back in time. And once again, that's part of the legal safeguards that have been negotiated over the many months. So this area is about 80 square blocks. However, it only accounts for 8% of the overall city's assessed value. So one of the questions or things that have been out there in the media is, isn't this a rather large incremental financing area? And actually, and, and Mr. Hunden will come behind me because this is really his area of expertise, especially in terms of the size of those districts, I believe he'll describe that as a below average size district. And we're going to talk about in a few minutes some of the very successful incremental financing areas one of those being Indianapolis, which is almost the entire downtown. So having said that, this is actually not a very large area. But again, it is an area that allows for this project to do those things that we're looking to have done. So on page 9, we just wanted to further highlight that area. You can see it's now in red. And then you could see again in the blue all of those properties. So let me once again, at the, at the risk of maybe being overly deliberate and redundant, but let me, if I can, Madam President, just say this. All of those blue parcels, those represent what will be new development parcels, right now tax exempt, and they will produce the new revenues, be it the hotel, be it the Blues Armory, etc., and we will be getting the dollars from there, the incremental dollars. And then the rest of that area, the non-blue, all that we'll be getting will be the incremental real estate only from that area. And there's a little bit of limited parking, which some folks could add a little more details onto, just to be further precise. But one of the important things and misperceptions, I think, out there is that there'll be new taxes put on those folks that are already in that district. That's not the case. There'll be no new taxes. The only taxing that'll occur will be those properties that right now that are producing nothing 
because they don't exist yet, because they're not, there is no hotel there. And then there will be incremental real estate with regard to those folks that already have real estate there, only over and above what is there now because all the values of this whole area are intended to go up. So lastly, on page 10, we've just drilled down even further. And I would like to make one other point, if I could, and that is with regard to schools, these various properties that are in blue, those that are going to produce meals tax, so for example, there'll be meals taxes that'll come from that new hotel. The meals taxes, the first 6% of that, will again go towards this helping to the city, but the extra 1.5% goes directly into those funds that were set up roughly a year ago or a little less, about a year ago now, to help towards the extra school construction. So you may recall that over the past year, when you all set up that 1.5%, we were hoping to get about 9.1 million. I think the last number that we received was over 9.3 million. This will actually add even more dollars to that 9.3 million. So I want to dispel the belief that somehow this project is taking dollars from the schools. It's actually going to be adding dollars to the overall school funding. So page 11. Let's get to, if I could, the overall numbers that I've been alluding to and why we're so excited about this project. So back in November, the developer presented to us the project, and they said that the incremental revenues over the 30 years would be roughly $1.2 million. As I mentioned, the mayor wanted to see if that was the type of number that made sense. Could we validate that? So he had Mr. Hunden and his firm come in, and they actually said, no, we don't see $1.2 million. We see about 1.7 million, billion, excuse me, 1.7 billion. They actually think there is an uplift, and I'll let Mr. Hunden talk about that further, of nearly 460 million over and above what this developer is thinking will be available to the city. On top of that, you see the 34 million, that's that 1.5% that I just talked about over and above all of that. So as presented in November, that number was about a billion seven. Since the actual negotiations and the finalization of all of this, the overall numbers are slightly smaller. Now the development is about $1.5 billion, still highly sizable. So again, $1.5 billion of revenues if this project occurs over 30 years. So if you go to page 12, we just wanted you to see, and because of timing, if I could, Madam President, I'm just going to simply say these numbers are broken out this way, and you can see again how we got to the billion five. Then let's go to page 13. Total expenses. We've got a net against this, the, the debt service. Well, the debt service on that $350 million based upon these cash flows is roughly $476 million. 
And there's another roughly $75 million of what we'll call extra expenses the city would incur over 30 years. So think of it this way. That's $550 million of expenses over 30 years. So page 14 really is the simple summary. Page 14. Billion five of revenues, 500 or so million of expenses. We're left with roughly a billion dollars. 985 million, roughly a billion dollars. Now, what that doesn't also show is that if we do nothing, right now, as you know, our debt capacity and our affordability is being cut back because in this past year's budget, the last year's budget, this coliseum that we have cost us roughly a million dollars just to operate at a loss. There's also an area there that is basically, in effect, uh, developmentally challenged because, again, it's a further liability. So we could argue that the net impact of the city is even greater than a billion dollars by doing this when you really look at it. So my last couple of pages, because I've been so long and I apologize, but again, on page 15, we asked ourselves, okay, assume we do nothing, the do-nothing scenario. The do-nothing scenario, perhaps at best, has this area, this incremental area, growing at what the city assessor has averaged of 2% a year over 30 years would be about $300 million. Mr. Hunden and I are not so sure that's correct, but again, I'm not an expert in that. But I do know that that area right now is, in a way, a further liability. So we said to ourselves, if indeed it performs as expected scenario two, we have a billion five, less the expenses, we're going to have a billion dollars remaining, roughly a billion. That's three times greater than the do-nothing scenario. We then said, what if the project doesn't perform as expected? We basically could go all the way over to scenario four and say that if the revenues of this project are literally half of what we expect, we're still better off, or no worse off, I should say, because we have a series of assets and we have a community. With that, I'm going to stop and just ask if... Uh, if Mr. Hunden will come up and uh, speak, I'm happy to answer any questions, of course. And the one other thing I would like to point out, Madam President, is in the back, we put together, working with Hunden and working with the city, about 15 or 16, as we call it, commonly asked questions put on our letterhead that perhaps you and others in the community would like to see answers for. And we've got that. We made about 75 copies, if not more. So with that, I will thank you and um, ask Mr. Hunden if he would go forward. Thank you, Mr. Davenport. Mr. Hunden. Thank you, sir. Thank you, and good evening. Uh, my name is Rob Hunden. Happy to be here and um, just talk a little bit about who we are and um, the process that we undertook as we assessed this, this proposed project. And pleased to be here. Uh, so first of all, um, if you all have the, the handout that looks like this, this is the one we'll be looking at. Um, and so if we go to page uh, three, who we are, then four, the firm focus. So uh, the firm that I 
uh, found it specializes in the advisory and analysis um, really at the intersection of three critical areas, real estate development, economic development, and tourism development. We consider ourselves sort of master economic development placemaking um, consultants. And my background, I think, is a good part of this story to give you a sense of um, uh, why I have a passion for the area that, that I've focused my entire career on. I started, my background is in finance, and I started at the Indianapolis Local Public Improvement Bond Bank, um, which is sort of a fancy long way of saying it's the, the project funding and management arm of the mayor's office of the city of Indianapolis. And that's one of many uh, great examples of cities that have um, leveraged and utilized TIF-like structures in many creative ways to um, really take cities that had um, suffered from suburban flight um, to reinvest in their downtowns and um, encourage uh, development that has had a halo effect uh, that has con continued to result in more and more investment over time. And so um, some of the projects that I worked on there um, many years ago are now needing renovation because it's been that long, but um, convention headquarters hotel of 615 rooms, a convention center expansion, um, NBA uh, basketball arena, um, uh, NFL football stadium, uh, union station uh, that had elements similar to your armory and many others. But since that time, um, I and my firm um, that I started a few years later um, have worked on over 600 projects and over um, uh, $4.5 billion and built successful projects in that time. Our focus is on market feasibility, competitive positioning, master programming, so if people want to know or communities or developers want to know um, what they should include in a development, a mixed-use project, we, we do all the assessment to help them figure out what has worked elsewhere so that can work in, in their project. Financial projections and feasibility, always with as um, sort of a straightforward and conservative bent as um, we think is appropriate, which it always is appropriate to be conservative in, in economics. Um, gap analysis and funding alternatives, 80 to 90%, depending on how the economy is doing at any given time, of our clients are folks like you, cities, counties, states, authorities, commonwealths. Um, and so uh, that you, you are our client. We don't typically work for the developers, although we, we have. Um, we do economic and fiscal impact analysis, as, as you've been reading about, community engagement. We also conduct developer. Um, this is actually pretty important. I teach, I have taught for the Inter International Economic Development Corporate, uh, Council for the last 15 years, their real estate development um, classes for, for people like Leonard Sledge going through those classes and getting their certification. And one of the things that's really important about it is we teach about how to attract developers to your community, um, to a project or a site. And when we're doing that, when you have to do that as a result of the other work you did, you can't be working on pie-in-the-sky projections. You have to be very realistic to what the development community wants. And one of the things that we know is that development developers are very sensitive about where they spend their time and effort and money, and the things that you do as a community can help or hinder that. Uh, so we'll be talking about that here in a little bit. Uh, we also talk about partnership options in our practice. Um, we focus really on these big mixed-use developments uh, or single 
purpose projects like convention centers, arena stadiums, youth sports complexes. Uh, we did a study in the Richmond City Stadium many years ago, uh, retail office and restaurant hotels, um, and they range anywhere from $5 million to um, a project in Chicago that we're working on that's almost $8 billion um, and is using sort of a similar tool. Um, if we go to page 8, that's just a map uh, showing where we've worked, which uh, now worked in 45 states plus Canada and other countries around the world. Um, and we have a state or a commonwealth contract with Kentucky, which is why you see so many um, little buildings there, because uh, I've worked on about 40 economic impact and fiscal impact analyses for tourism-oriented projects uh, for the state or for the Commonwealth of Kentucky since 2001. You can see on page 9 that I only own one tie and uh, two shirts, um, but that, that is a picture of me. Uh, but, I, but this is what I've been doing my entire career and uh, obviously take it very seriously and enjoy what I do and teach um, those in the industry how to analyze these projects in a way that protects communities and helps them evolve into a uh, better place to live, work, play, and visit. Um, our staff is about a dozen folks, um, mostly with real estate and finance backgrounds, um, and they, they, and I am involved in every single project that we do, and I am mightily assisted by my team. We have repeat clients all over the country, of course. I mentioned the Commonwealth of Kentucky, where I've worked on over 40 projects there, the city of Chicago and other entities in Chicago where we are based, um, such as the $100 million Riverwalk redevelopment, Navy Pier, which is the most visited um, project in the Midwest, um, city of Durham, Durham, Indianapolis, and many states, uh, many cities all around the Midwest, um, much of Texas, including uh, many years in Fort Worth, and Madison, amongst others. I just wanted to give you a sense from my perspective, having worked in the industry for a long time, um, what the, the concept of TIF is all about and um, how it's been utilized. So this is something that um, the structure generally has been around for a long time, uh, TIF-style districts. And, and what this is, um, it's been used um, even in the last, um, say, a 15-year period from 2000 through 2015, there on page 13, more than 2,500 uh, TIF-style bond issues were sold to investors, totaling nearly $40 billion. Um, and it is the most commonly used incentive-style structure in the country. And there's a reason for it, and because it generally is work, it, it works, it's, it's um, safe for communities. It uh, sort of is self-policing in many ways. Um, and it had been authorized in all 50 states and the District of Columbia by the late 1990s. Um, let's go to page 14. So TIF um, basically stands for tax increment financing. And essentially what that does is it, 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 the focus was what do we do with these, these areas, these focus areas of a downtown or a community that are a challenge that we are having a hard time getting um, the private sector to invest in. Maybe if we can recapture or recoup some future benefit that will be created by an investment today, and we can plow that back into the project today, that will take some of the risk away from the private sector getting involved in this area. So this is really key. Um, for cities who haven't been down this road before, it might be uh, a strange thing to hear, but it, it is 
honestly been used thousands of times around the country, and it's because it works. Basically, when you have an area or a parcel that needs to be invested in, um, you can recapture some of those future tax benefits that will be generated, and but for that project, those taxes would not be there, right? The, the, the parcel would just sit there. But with this new investment, you're generating new property taxes, and those are then being recouped by a bond structure that allows this, the community or the project to invest in parking, sidewalks, other things that help the project area. So core elements of TIF include a designated district with defined geographic boundaries, a defined and limited operation period. That's important because all TIFs sunset, and when they sunset, the community coffers are not, um, aren't are getting the entirety of all those revenues. And so um, that's just icing on the cake at that point. Um, and again, but for the project, those investments and revenues would not have existed. These expenditures encourage economic development. And what tends to happen, and the reason that they are done in a way that is sort of a neighborhood area or a district as opposed to a project-specific TIF, is because the whole point is to uh, have a rising tide that lifts the boats of the surrounding um, district area. So you're, you're trying to sort of prime the pump for that area. You are inducing new spending and uh, really leadership both from the private sector and the public sector into that neighborhood. And when others see that, then they are, their barriers to entry, their barriers to investment fall because they see that others have succeeded and others are um, generating increment and they're generating value. And so the surrounding area properties appreciate at a faster rate than if you had not generate it if you had not developed those parcels. And so that's why we sort of talk about that rising tide lifting all boats. It actually does work. And it's one of the big differences between our projections and the developers' projections here is that there was an assumption of that 2% growth. Um, and what we, what we showed was a stronger growth with this investment than without it. Um, these style structures do not impose any new taxes on property owners, and but for the project, these new taxes would not exist. So, um, you know, 100% of zero is still zero. And so what we see here in these types of projects is you're, you're increasing the tax base and you're using a portion of that increase in the tax base to reinvest into the project to get it off the ground in the first place. And but for that incentive it would be hard to make that happen. Um, TIF examples nationally and um, in Virginia, just a few of the thousands that exist. Of course, I'm familiar um, from my days a long time ago in downtown Indianapolis, nearly the entire downtown was uh, part of the um, downtown Indianapolis TIF, and so we used um, we used that for billions in, in projects to be developed. And as that um, halo effect occurs as that virtuous cycle occurs. It attracts more investment and the, in the increment increases everywhere. And so you're starting to get real estate tax increment, new assessed value coming in that you hadn't even planned for. And so again, it's that virtuous uh, cycle there, which is great. Overland Park, uh, we're working on a, a major mixed-use project there. The state of Kansas has what's called star bonds, and that's a sales tax 
increment uh, TIF style structure. And so for projects that can show that they are bringing in net new spending and are unique and inductive of new spending, uh, they can get these these star bonds, and so they're they're backed by the increase in sales taxes on a project. So we're working on a, a several hundred million dollar project there with many of these same elements: uh, an arena, um, hotel, retail, restaurant, office, residential. Uh, Irvine Great Park in California, that's a ten thousand home uh, community that is being built on a former marine air base and also has a hundred-plus-million-dollar youth sports complex. And there is basically a, a TIF-style structure that's placed over that entire thing to help pay for those amenities. In Fort Worth, uh, in Texas, they've been very creative with um, their TIF-style structures. Um, they have different names for them. Um, it's commonly referred to there as TIRZ, T-I-R-Z. But they've also created something called a project finance zone. And in certain cities, um, they basically take in a hotel tax increment, uh, so a, a hotel tax TIF, if you will, over a certain area around a, an arena and a convention center and said, any incremental hotel taxes over a baseline in the future will go to expanding the convention center and building their new arena. Um, so they did that off of a hotel tax uh, TIF, if you will. Uh, Ashland in the state of Kentucky, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, um, is a similar. It's a state TIF as opposed to a local TIF, uh, but again, it's a it's a recapture of future incremental dollars. And then you have many examples in Virginia, but one that we wanted to just show you here. We did not work on this, but it's one that may be familiar to you was the Short Pump Town Center TIF style district in Henrico County, um, which um, has been successful there. So. Um, if I can then go to slide 22 and 23, again, um, the assumed Navy Hill project elements for the study. Um, I think it's important to note that when we look at things as a one-off versus as a critical mass, there's a big difference. You get a gravitational pull when you have a large mass of something. But if you're just doing things in little bits and pieces, you don't have that gravitational pull. You just have a scatter shot of stuff. Um, so one of the things that makes our analysis of this uh, fun and interesting is that um, by creating by putting so many different things that are um, creating such a sense of variety of options for uh, places to live, uh, office op opportunities, uh, restaurants, retailers, and entertainment options, not to mention hotel, all of a sudden you've created something as opposed to just a one-off, right? You've created a new nexus of activity that's going to be attractive to uh, people not only locally, but especially people outside of the city. And so that's the one thing that we always... So first off, our job is to tell people the truth and tell them why things won't work, right? That's what I do every day of my life is tell people why something won't work. So we were very skeptical when we came into this to say, okay, what's the story here? What, what's going on? What's this proposal? We've, we've seen a lot. We've heard a lot of crazy things. Okay, once we understood what this was all about and what the proposal was, what it included, how it solved problems, but also what the financial structure was and the fact that the city is not um, 
on the hook for any of these um, uh, debt repayments, um, this started to all become clear, right? And so you have a new arena. Right now you're losing a million dollars a year in operating on the existing uh, facility. It's not uh, seen well in the promoter uh, and concert and family show community. You're missing out on a lot of acts and entertainment um, that are going to other areas uh, in the state uh, primarily. Um, so you have that, which will reverse that outflow of, of spending and entertainment dollars. You have something that's not been talked about a lot is the headquarters hotel. Your convention center is a very nice convention center that has a very non-competitive block of hotels surrounding it. And so by having that 500-plus um, key headquarters hotel, that's going to totally change the competitiveness of the convention center. So that will then reverse that sucking sound of pushing away business and bringing that back. So we counted not just net new spending at the new hotel, which some of it, not all of it, will be new, but you're going to raise the, the tide of the other hotels, too, by growing the pie of conventioneers that are coming to town and likely raising the rate. Because when you have an investment in quality, everybody's rates actually go up. Maybe not the first two years, but over time, relative to inflation. Um, restoration of the Blues Armory into a food market, music club, and ballroom. Again, you're giving people something to do. Uh, nearly 800,000 square feet of office space. Um, obviously having jobs on site, some of that daytime spending is going to come and stay right in the city, um, even if they don't all live in the city. 275,000 square feet of mixed-use retail space. This is critical, too. If you're just opening one restaurant or you're opening 12 restaurants, that's a big difference because you as a, as a citizen may say with your family or friends, hey, let's go down to this area and just pick a place to go. If there's only one or two restaurants there, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have that ability. But that's that the value of critical mass. So we appreciate it that the developer is doing a lot of mixed-use retail and restaurant space. And then, of course, several thousand multifamily apartments, uh, both uh, at market rate and affordable, eighty uh, percent and sixty percent rates, plus supportive parking, and of course the new GRTT transfer station. So all of those things sort of put together um, sort of make this have a gravitational pull and a critical mass that make it attractive as a place that feels safe for visitors to come who maybe haven't been to Richmond before. Um, if they were just coming to a one-off development that was surrounded by uh, empty parking lots at night, you may not see them again. That doesn't feel safe. But if you're recreating a, a whole new neighborhood and making things that are taxable to tomorrow that were not taxable today, and you're creating that lighted, safe environment of activity uh, day and night, um, that's going to have a, an overall positive effect on you. So anyway, the um, we ran our analysis. We did all our own homework. We interviewed local stakeholders, brokers, the management company, uh, promoters, the convention center folks, the tourism people. We, just like we do for any of our studies, and came up with our findings. And um, in some ways, they were uh, more robust um, than what the developer had, had um, proposed or had uh, projected. And we feel good about those findings. Um, as I mentioned on slide 26, we, we conducted all of our analysis. We have um, 
you know, my name is on the door, so I need to work for the next 20 to 25 years. So I don't have any real prior relationships with anyone here, although Leonard, we did work in Hampton together, but he just started here in June, way after our work was done. But I, um, and we worked previously for the city on the uh, city stadium project, but that was years ago. So um, we have no, no dog in this hunt. Um, and we really just want to see you succeed. And I think you're smart to ask great questions and always be skeptical. Um, but also when something um, has been vetted, um, then I think you, 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 you do what you need to do to, to move forward. Because the alternative is, if you don't do anything, of course, you're basically going backwards. But if this is a good project that you believe in, and you don't do it, what we have seen happen, and in the classes I teach for developer solicitation and attraction, what happens when you turn down a project of this magnitude um, that stays online for a long time, and it's really hard to get other developers to um, really take you seriously in the future. The same would be true if you took a bunch of swings and misses at projects that were too good to be true. So you have to really hit it down the fairway. And so you don't want to be on one end so conservative that you turn everything down or on the other end that you're swinging at every pitch. So we have seen this play out over the last year. They've got a zillion folks working on it. And we feel good about the work we did. And I think that... Um, David and I would be happy to take any questions that you all would have for us this evening. Thank you, um, Mr. Hunden, and certainly um, taking time while you're here in our city to give a more macro overview, and certainly Mr. Rose with Davenport. Um, I just want to be clear, it is my understanding that while you have provided a macro level review, if you will, that meetings are being scheduled with council members so that there can be more of a micro, deeper dive, questions uh, answered and responded to that we may all, is that accurate? Looking at the administration, you're saying yes? Okay. And so while there may be a couple of questions we would take now, I think we're all expecting to have a deeper dive and conversation um, with administration and with, uh, as the work is done by commission and as the work is done by the independent consultant. So there may or may not be questions or comments at this point. So, Ms. Ms. Larson. Okay. Oh, it's the new mic. Um, okay, so when um, we first heard about this project, and I think when it went to, for you all for analysis, were you doing the analysis under the smaller original proposed TIF, which was 10 or 15 blocks, I believe? And then it grew to what it is now, which is like 80. So. And I think any of the folks from Davenport can speak to the, the sort of the day-to-day -day changes that occurred. But I think there were some, some adjustments even during the time that we were getting our bearings. Um, but I, don't, I can't speak to the machinations behind the scenes. But obviously, you have a report, and it's very explicit about what it counts and what it doesn't. 
Um, so that's what we were told to count. And I know it's changed a little bit since yeah. then. I can't remember without the document in front of me, Councilwoman Larson. So I don't want to give you an answer, yes or no. So I don't have it right now. Okay. We'll get that answer for you. And I'm not sure I actually had anything on paper, but when we were first um, briefed on the project, and I think this was for public consumption also at that time, that it was 10 blocks or something. But I, I, I recall what you were, you were talking about when we were there and we talked about that. Uh -huh. um, the reason we actually made the effectively that more of a, you know, more of a rectangle, if you would, was because the recognition that this whole area, as, as Rob alluded to, is, is going to have an uplift. All of those properties, not just the ones that were delineated initially, were going to benefit. So the thinking was, if that whole area was going to be the beneficiary, what that was going to do, in effect, was actually turn off even additional dollars even faster to be able to be targeted to schools and to infrastructure and, and what, what have you. So that was part of the, the thinking, as I recall, uh, as to why we made that a bigger, a bigger area. And Rob, you, you may recall that element of it. Yeah, and I would, yeah, I would just say just in, in terms of best practices, uh, we prefer as economic development advisors uh, when communities establish a larger district than the project itself. Because if it's just the project itself receiving the benefits of their increment, uh, a couple things happen. It can seem a little bit self-serving to the project, of course. It also then disallows for you to use that same tool or elements of the uplift in the future. Um, for, say, surrounding areas. So let's say, in, in, and we have the map of the, the area here, um, you know, there, there could be projects that want to happen in the future in this area, and you may want to use some of the increment for those to get those off the ground. So it just is a great tool. It doesn't hamstring you. It actually gives you more tools and more freedom to sort of uh, work in economic development a little bit stronger than you have been able to, to until now. Okay. Just a quick follow-up. Is there any analysis um, on... The, the impact if we cut that TIF size back, if we took it from where it is now and cut it in half or eliminated 75% of it. Because I think, yeah, I, the reports that we have say it's an extra billion in revenue, right? So it seems like it would still be funded. So I think, as Councilman Newbill, President Newbill said, when we take a deeper dive, we'll bring some of those numbers and go into them. But just the way in which the overall cash flows work and the timing and everything, it really is uh, to our advantage, our meaning the city's advantage, to be able to have the best possible uh, district size and certain revenues flowing through so that we can actually get the lowest possible cost of money and that we can actually do those things that, that we're talking about. So again, I think I would defer if I could to answer that to, to show you some of those numbers and sort of walk you through it on the, those one-on-ones that I think you were alluding to, uh, President Newbel. So Thank you. Mr. Agilesto. Thank you. Um, and Similarly, along those lines, um, 
the example from short pump that was presented uh, really my understanding of that was that there was a special tax district created that met the debt service obligation and that the TIF was an added backstop in case the assessments didn't meet the projections that there would be other uses of the incremental taxes coming off to help cover the debt. Um, and it, the TIF was actually never needed because the special assessment uh, tax district covered the debt service. So that's a slightly different structure. I think it's interesting how it's been used as an example here because, frankly, I think that would be a wonderful uh, addition to how this project gets financed uh, if it were available. And it seems that the council could make that available. I haven't heard otherwise. Well, we could go into the Henrico project. Jimmy here, my partner, has actually worked on that project from a from the legal side of it. So, if he recalls that, he's going to be able to talk about that. We were on the we were we were the uh, actual underwriter of those projects years ago. So, maybe you want to address yeah, that just, just real quick. So, the you're right. There was two two components to that um, that that those bonds. The first line of payment, though, was the incremental sales tax uh, that were produced at the mall. The second line, if that was insufficient to pay debt service, was a special assessment on the real estate. That special assessment never had to be paid by the property owners because the incremental revenues at the mall produce enough annual revenue to pay debt service. Okay. And the project and that was off in six years. In six years. Right. Those, those revenues were so substantial, Councilman, that, that overall debt, I think it was around 25 or $30 million, was actually retired in six years because of all those incremental dollars. And so, again, here, what's important, I think you bring it up, we're not even asking for a backstop in the form of a special assessment district backstop. That's, that's the other important point here. Um, and Rico the district is also sub substantially larger than what Henrico used for its financing tool. And I think that goes to Councilwoman Larson's issue or concerns about why is the TIF district so large, which leads me to my second question. Um, and I've asked this in private meetings, but I don't believe I've received any follow-up documentation. But I'd appreciate if you could s share with the Council um, the uh, bond prospectus, the underwriting documents, so that we can understand uh, a, you know, where is it being touted to the bond uh, holders, you know, that there's this uh, non-guarantee from the city? And then secondly, you know, what are they anticipating uh, in terms of the payoff? Because the surplus, as I understand, it's not 50% going to schools. It's actually 25% because of the surplus from the TIF. 50% is going to pay down debt early. So, you know, I, I do have some concerns about how things are being talked about publicly and the types of numbers that are being used. So I think if we could have those prospectus, it would really uh, highlight publicly what the bondholders expect. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, yeah, the city's not on the hook, but we're also transferring a substantial amount of real estate to the EDA, and you know, I'd like to make sure that there's nothing uh, in that bond prospectus that says that you know the 
land is an asset that could be used as collateral. I mean, there are things like that 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 I need to see written guarantees because if you say, well, council, you just have to approve this and then we'll go and issue the debt, you know, I, I would like to make sure that uh, certain guarantees yeah. are provided. So I, I think you make a number of, of very good points. Um, I could answer them one by one, but I think first off, um, with regard to the prospectus that you're talking about, in any financing like this, you need a, a bond prospectus, an offering document, if you would. And that document has not yet been created. What is happening here, taking it one step at a time, is that document will be a function of the agreement, that 900, 100 plus pages, that is effectively going to steer what that document looks like. So your first level of comfort here is that that bond document will have to reflect the agreement that the city attorney and ORIC have actually written. So they're not going to be able to do those things, for example, that give you concern. And again, when you see what is there in terms of safeguards, I think you're going to feel very good about that. So, Mr. But, Rose, yeah, good. and Please, I hate to just cut you off, but my understanding from other mm-hmm. projects that use TIFFs um, was that they, the council got to review those types of documents prior to voting on them. And I, I think you're saying that the timeline requires our vote before that can be created. I'm not saying that. And well, that's what I heard. No, I'm saying so that, that document. No, let, let's 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 take a step back here. That document has not yet been put together. However, we've got to verse, first start with: Is this council even even comfortable with the concept of having a TIF-style funding structure? to do this project. If indeed you are, what you're going to impose is what has been written, which is all the various requirements that you want to see happen. And if indeed those things are there, then ultimately ORIC as bond council will make sure that that document is written in such a way that it's protecting your interests. So, for example, real estate and other things that may give you pause will be addressed acceptably up front. That's what we're trying to say. So ultimately, and again, I look, Jimmy, you're being a lawyer here, um, the EDA has to all be approved. Those, that, that bond document, I take it, will have to be approved uh, ultimately here, as well as the EDA, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah and, and again, I think the, the, the point of an official statement and offering time is the same thing we do with the city when you sell bonds. It's reflective of the contractual arrangement that you've come to. And whatever project council ultimately approves, that's what has to be reflected in the documents. And the lawyers are going to make sure that that's, that's the case. So I think the first step, obviously, is are the documents and the project that's been presented acceptable to council? I mean, that's what's reflective in, in the, the documents, the contractual documents that are prepared. Then you prepare, if, if it is acceptable, and whatever it, it, its outcome is, then you prepare an offering document that reflects that contractual arrangement. Okay. And maybe, maybe I'll go back to my sources, but I was under the impression that J.P. Morgan had pretty much already drafted such document um, based on the, the proposed terms? If, if they have, it, we, we've it. not seen it. Um, and again, it would be reflective of whatever the contractual arrangement ultimately is. And so if the contractual arrangement changes, then whatever they've put together that, again, we haven't seen would have to change as well. 
Again, recognizing we're months away from you're going to go through your deliberations, your review, your analysis. Um, we're, we're talking about almost certainly that they will be selling bonds, if it's acceptable to you, sometime in 2020. So for them, if they've got some drafts, that's wonderful, but we haven't seen it. It's premature. Thank you. Ms. Gray? So I just want to dovetail some of the questions um, Mr. Agilesto has been asking because I met with the bond attorney and was told that there was a maximum amount of $350 million that I could find in the EDA agreement. So when I left there, I went to the EDA agreement and did not find that. As a matter of fact, there were no parameters or um, there's no amount, term, rate, any information, or even preliminary parameters. So how on earth, if, if you don't know what those parameters are, can you say how much the debt is going to cost? That's a very good question, Councilman Gray. So what we have and what we've had from day one is a relative order of magnitude. And I can't tell you right now, I remember exactly what interest rate assumption and size that they put on there. But what I can say is that since that time that it was submitted in November, for example, their estimated interest rate that they had given to us in their proposal actually has come down. I mean, the interest rate has come down. And so what we're trying to do is to take a look at this. And before, again, everything is ultimately approved, just like we do when I get in front of you to get your blessing to do a CIP project, I give you a parameters, or I ask you through the attorneys to approve a parameters. That's the same thing that will have to happen here. So that goes to your point, that we'll make sure that if those parameters can't be met, then we don't see the cash flows working. And they but, won't see the cash flows. So that's just, that's just a matter of time. We're not even close to there yet. But isn't that typically included? I've looked at other projects of this type in other localities within Virginia and other areas, and all of those documents included that language. It had preliminary we'll that. bond we'll agreements. That. It stated whether or not the bonds were underwritten prior that, to... That's down the road. So, so when I come to you... What you've typically approved is a actual legal document that says, just go with me for a minute, as long as it's under 5% and it doesn't go past 20 years and it doesn't have certain or does have certain things, then you give us the blessing to go into the marketplace and get that. The same will hold true here. But should I mean, if we're trying to assess this so, overall... Shouldn't so we, we know what that is? That's so different than our general CIP. I think that's what Councilman Newbill, or President Newbill, is saying. When we take a deeper dive, just because of time here, we've got all that information for you. That That's not something that's difficult for us to walk you through. Is the well, Can we make it public? Can we can we make the parameters public? And also, can we, can we find out whether or not the bonds will be purchased by the underwriter prior to their sale so that we don't get stuck like in previous arrangements the city council had to come back and and do a moral obligation on well, the I cda can, agreements right. from the past so, so i'm glad you i'm glad you brought that up so the administration here has made it clear that if those bonds are not sellable based upon that private investment that we're talking about and the non-recourse, 
I, I, can, I can say, if I can speak for council, meaning for our staff, we're not coming back to this city council. We're not going to do that. And so the project that you're alluding to that happened um, was the Broad Street CDA. And that was a project that, just for the record, yours truly and my colleagues actually said was a bad project going in. We were not advisor on that project because we did not believe that project, if you want to use the, you know, the metaphor that dog could hunt, we didn't see that happening. So we actually did not ultimately serve as advisor on that project. We stayed away from that project. Having said that, having said that, this project is a whole different situation. We will make sure up front that if indeed these bonds are not sellable, the city will not be on the hook and nothing will happen. That's, that's the difference here. It's, it's night and day, but I'm glad you brought that up. So Thank you. I do have a separate question aside from the bonds. Yeah. We, we get the information. We see that the debt is covered. What happens with the operating expenses if the Coliseum doesn't meet? Another good question. So the way the document is written, and again, I'm not the lawyer, but I will say this. The operations of this, the risk, if you would, is on the operator. It's not on the city. So right now, you operating that, that the war operating that Coliseum, you are on the hook. That's why it costs a million dollars a year in the general fund. What we understand and what the documents show the agreement is that something to the tune, I could be a little bit off on my number, so give me a little leeway here. I believe there's something to the tune of $8 million of investment that the proposed operator is going to be putting into the new arena. So they will be fully invested in the success of this. And then there are a series of what-ifs that if indeed they don't meet certain criteria, then the city has certain, if you want to call them, rights. Again, not my world, legal rights. But that's exactly the type of thing that this 900-plus pages and all the months of all the negotiation have been made to minimize, if not avoid, the risk to the city. And that's why we've taken so long, is because those kinds of issues have been, from our perspective, successfully uh, resolved. Obviously, it'll be up to you to decide if you feel they're successfully resolved. But that's exactly one of those issues that I think when we have a legal meeting, they can talk in detail about your answer, giving you, giving you the answer. And is there a response later that, where you can direct me to find that portion of the agreement about the operating cost? Um, and also, with the Coliseum, is it going to be used as collateral for the bonds? No. No. And again, I think absolutely we can point you to the page and paragraph right. ultimately of where that, that, what the language you're looking for specifically. Um, and that would, it's in the, the arena lease. Um, and it talks all about the, the operations of the lease and, and who's responsible for the operations of the arena. So, really, at this point, um, because we have we don't have our bond counselor present, right? Right. And so, some of these questions are very legal, well, and some very are basic. micro, and we need to have answers to them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but these aren't these aren't. I'm not diving so deep in the bond agreement. I'm just asking the rate term 
an amount of the bond, which is basic to any financing. So that that's not, I mean, I understand the bond attorney's not here, but I don't think it requires a bond attorney to answer that question. No, it doesn't. As we said, we've got all those numbers, and those are, those are readily available. That's, that's a very easy thing to give you. And so I want to make sure that the question, you hear the questions and you hear the deep dive that is um, going to be the case for members here. And so our staff is recording those, but what you've indicated you will share and that you will earmark will be looking for those to come back uh, for yes, this body. As we said, I started the whole presentation by saying this is meant to be the beginning of our education to you because you all are our clients. And we need to make sure that we're all comfortable with this overall complex structure and that the safeguards are there so we don't have another Broad Street CDA. Um, so I know exactly, I believe, what you're looking for. And as, as Jimmy said, there is a certain document or maybe several pieces of different documents that speak to exactly the types of questions you have We've got the numbers. We didn't bring them tonight, but when we take the deep dive, if we can sit down with you, we will look forward to going over that and showing you the old numbers that were higher, the new numbers that are lower, meaning the rates and things of that nature. We and do that. Thank you. Mr. Jim. Well, I still I can't see. I still had. I, didn't, I couldn't see you. Okay. So it's Sorry. you. Um, my other question is when we met in private um, before this proposal was put forward, one of the big selling points was a more walkable Jackson Ward. Lee Street would be leveled off. There would be state monies that would be utilized to uh, level it. There would be some cost savings because the Coliseum debris could fill in the hole. So that's all been taken out. And then there was supposed to be some apartments developed along that stretch. And I see just from reading in the news that those numbers have been reduced. So have these projections been adjusted for yes, that? And is there any hope of Lee Street being leveled as a, I mean, that was a big selling point. Obviously, I represent Jackson Ward, not that side of it, but. Well, two things. Number one, Councilwoman, I will defer to the administration with regard to sort of the actual structure of the, the physical structure and what's there and how it's going to be there. But yes, indeed, the numbers have all been adjusted. Um, I know I went quickly, but it still had so many pages. But if you look at that column that we had that said November 18th, and then it said the sort of the, the revised, that revised reflects those updated numbers that includes uh, what Mr. Hunden did in terms of updating that uplift. Because, for example, one particular block has been changed since that period of time. So I'd refer, I'd defer, I should say, to, to uh, Ms. Cuffey Glenn and her staff if they were able to at some time talk about what is exactly the, the look of the project and whether it's you know, Lee Street or elsewhere. So I would do that. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Jones and, this, and then Ms. Robertson, and we will wrap up the questions at this point. Thank you, Madam President. One of the things I'd like uh, to recommend or ask if it's possible for a uh, city attorney to set up that meeting for a presentation from a uh, bond counselor uh, so we can have a discussion on that piece by itself. I think that would be um, Duly noted, Mr. Jones. Um, and, and then, you know, some of the things that, that I've just been, you know, dealing with, talking with, studying, and things of that nature, 
Um, and we'll just like it presented at some point as we move forward, uh, apart from the administration, um, you know, how do we continue to deal with uh, the cost of providing services? Um, there, there's, there's, I, I trust me, I get the tip and I understand all that. I understand the increment, I understand the percentage, um, and the percentage of uh, 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 our actual budget or what our budgets would be in, in out years. I, w I would like to know just again, uh, uh, what's the impact to uh, cost of services year one through year five and things of that nature? How is that impacted one? Secondly, uh, I'd like to know, understand the waterfall. Um, what are the cash flow projections year one, two, three, four, five? We got the number for year, year 30, right? We have this huge number, but you know, again, how do I get through year five in five, year five to, to year 10? Um, and those are some of the conversations that I'd like to have and the information I'd like uh, provided. Sure. You're clear in terms of what Mr. Jones is requesting and administration so that we're talking really by year uh, projection, but also in certainly the bond council discussion. Right. And one time, if I understood you, cost, but reoccurring costs for various city agencies is right. some I mean, of that. So right. some of that is captured. But again, what you hear and the administration as well is that this body is looking for a deep dive uh, in each of these areas. Uh, some of the questions you've heard this evening, and so uh, our staff will follow up with the administration who will be in touch with you, but really wanting to have uh, sufficient information to vet uh, this proposal. That, I think. Thank and you. We welcome that. Ms. Robertson. Thank you, Madam President. Um, and thank you for the presentation. Um, this is a huge development for the city of Richmond. I think it's a fabulous uh, opportunity for us to explore uh, ways by which we look at economic development opportunities in the city. Um, I, my comments uh, basically align with what uh, Councilman Jones have already said, as well as the president has reinforced. Um, the numbers that we have before us um, give us a big picture for 30 years. Um, it is difficult for me to assess um, the real uh, costs as well as revenue projections on an annual basis to give me a 30-year performa so that I know what we're looking at over that period of time. Um, I need to have more information to help me feel good and be able to convince uh, the citizens that, that live in the city of Richmond and, and specifically the 6th District. For the most part, most of this development takes place in the 6th District. And as the representative for the 6th District, um, Many of my constituents and business owners have lots of questions that they pose to me as their representative to make sure that the risk factors that are put in, that exist, that we have put sufficient uh, 
first of all, we've done the right job at analyzing it and, and, and analyzing the projection of the anticipated revenue that's going to come from this area. I was a little confused in one of the present, one of your, one of you all's comments, not sure which one, as it relates to the TIF zone that uh, the revenue as it relates to real estate taxes. Uh, when I'm reading the document, there's frequent references to all taxes being used as a part of uh, the TIF zone. And so I'm sure that was, that's the case, right? We're looking so at- so here's, here's the case. So within that incremental financing area, all the incremental real estate will go towards the my question is but I know the other the other I, I, that's what I'm saying but the sales taxes the meals taxes all that within that district of existing existing businesses will not be going to that no what's going to happen is only that net new those I, in fact I think I had it on one of the pages we had several blue little lettered areas that the projects that were brand new, like the, the hotel, that's a net new, whether it's, whether it's A, B, C, I can't remember what it is. That is where those new, the new revenues, that means the meals taxes or the sales taxes, okay, so let that's me, going. We can show you that breakout. Okay, so I'm yes. sure you'll make that clarification. Um, yes, I, I, I did not, when my review, I did not, I assume that all increases in taxes no. of all of those types. But not. You're saying, I understand what you're saying. Okay. Yes. So that's a clarification for me. But that's just one example mm-hmm. of yes. not being able to have a detailed spreadsheet for us that really shows us where your projections of those, any of those sources of revenue mm-hmm. are coming from, what your projections are, what are your anticipation of uh, growth in that area to support the real estate taxes that you're uh, using as a part of this? And whereas I appreciate the fact that the bonding company is going to do their due diligence, they're not going to give us a bond if they don't feel like we have the necessary capacity to be able to, to see that that bond is repaid, whether it's the, and even though it's the EDA that will be making that bond application without those assurances that we're not going to get a bond. I, I respect that. But for, for me to be able to, su- to support or to make a decision on what needs to be done as it relates to this proposal before me, I need to really, th- I personally feel that we should already have the background information that supports the assumptions that are presented in your report so that I can be more specific in asking you questions about your assumptions. What I have before me at the present time and the ordinances that we are, that are before us to pass mm-hmm. does not address that financial information to the degree that really gives me the comfort that I need to be able to assure uh, my constituents and the, the citizens of the city of Richmond that the analysis from the projection of how many jobs are going to be created, how do we, where, where are those jobs? Um, from the revenue streams that is being projected over the 30 years, and just to have that performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 
$900 million investment. You know, better detail about where is that investment coming from? What assurance? Um, I have no assurance on your numbers. I have no background information to give me an assurance. So this is very important for me to be Mm -hmm. able to see that before I move to the next step of talking about um, design, street patterns, uh, all of those kinds of things. I also would like to know, and perhaps the attorney can tell us this, the boundaries for the TIF zone, there's no, my understanding, there's no paper, no document that actually create this TIF zone by the boundaries. Um, I know it's mentioned uh, as it relates to the boundaries, as it relates to the tax increments, but my question as to whether or not we really actually need a zone defined. Um, that's something that I can work out. I can speak with the attorney and get some more clarity on that. But I, I those are basically that. some of my concerns, mm-hmm. uh, Madam President, and I appreciate the fact that this meeting is not for the intent for the deep dive. Um, but I think it's important that the full council is provided with that kind of information that we can review it and scrutinize it ourselves before we get into just one-on-one individual uh, dialogues about the background information. I think we that's fair enough. And again, we we, we we have no problem. Again, we have done that on your behalf, and now the desire by this body, or at least by yourself and and others like Mr. Jones, are to see some more of that deep dive and to go through it. We are delighted to do that. I know I speak for um, is the there administration. A time, is there a time frame, Madam President, that we can receive Well, I that think the meetings are either they have been scheduled or are being scheduled, but the source documentation mm-hmm. that's being asked for, we'll um, members would need to get that in advance of the meeting so they can have perused it and be prepared with any questions. So source and or secondary... You get a sense of the data that's being asked for. And I'm not, as long as you're, we have staff who are recording that, but so that, and I'm looking at you, but it really the administration as well, so that those things can be provided to council members in advance of the meetings, and so that we can then uh, have more informed discussions. Okay. Okay. Not a problem. Thank you. The very last question, Mr. Addison. Thank you, Council President. Uh, my question relates to um, the the Hunden uplift revenues, as it relates to, I guess, the current, the previously presented in terms of uh, November 9th, 2018 versus the current one that was updated for this analysis. It's just something around 88.1 percent of the uplift calculation. I just want to better understand some of the revenues because that's kind of what we're talking about too: is the projections moving forward. And I just want to understand more about what the uplift revenue meant specifically. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, I, I think uplift is a, is a term for the increment over a baseline. Um, and, and so, uh, it, it, but I think what your question, you have two questions, I think. What the, what the heck does the uplift mean? And number two, um, what's the difference between July 19 and November 18? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so I think Davenport can certainly speak to the difference between the two scenarios. We did all of our due diligence about 9 to 12 months ago. Um, so that's what you find in the detailed report. And by the way, all the projections that get to those revenues are in our 
in our report, so you have at least that detail, and then how you connect the dots between what we projected and where that would flow. I think maybe that's where some additional clarity would be amazing. Um, so yeah, in terms of what the uplift is, um, there is a current uh, assumption of, well, there's, a, there's the current amount of assessed value in real estate taxes being paid by the parcels within the primary and the secondary zones. Um, then there is the sort of the historical average, say, of 2% growth, although in a depressed area, it, it doesn't even always reach that point. Then there's the question of an additional line of increment uh, above due to the investment in the neighborhood, right? And so we projected that. So the difference between the future in every of those 30 years, the future assessed value and resulting taxes, and the baseline is that is that uplift. You mentioned one, this one clarification point. You mentioned in the current, I guess, proposed TIF area neighborhood as well as around it. Mm -hmm. Both, it's not just the TIF district, it's also surrounding, I guess, area that could see also investment as well. Is that correct? Yeah, so, well, what we, so we sort of divided the, the, the map of the, the district into sort of the project itself, and there are very specific things that can be generated and recaptured from the project itself and those various elements. Then there was the primary impact zone that we felt would be the most highly and positively impacted by that investment because it's just the first ring. And then there was the secondary impact zone that we felt would be still positively impacted but not as much as in the primary zone. And so we made different assumptions about um, how those zones would be impacted. And so their uplift is, is, is different. In terms of which taxes in the deal ultimately get recaptured and utilized to pay for things, um, that's, we had our set of assumptions in here. And some are very specific to specific areas, and some are more broad. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mr. Hunden, thank you uh, for the presentation. Ms. Rose, thank you. I'm pretty clear that you are clear the level of specificity that will be necessary to be responsive to questions that council members have. And again, we look forward to receiving that information in advance of the meetings that we have scheduled so that they can be uh, as productive as possible. And I'm looking at you, though, the administration working in conjunction with yourselves. So, again, thank you, and uh, uh, much work ahead. Yes. Thank, thank you. you. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Thank you all. Mr. Clark, if we could move on to... Madam President. Ms. Robertson. Yes. Um, before we move on to the next agenda item, um, I would just like to, um, for us to consider if council could have uh, some discussion, if not today, at some other time, as it relates to the process that we want to follow as far as the review of the proposal that's before us and make some decisions as it relates to uh, how we are going to, going to go about doing this as well as uh, how I'll schedule a review as to whether or not we can break this up into a compartment so that we can move from one stage to the next and make a determination on one stage so that we can move to the next stage of this proposal uh, because of the complexity of it. 
Um, also, as to whether or not we are going to consider any of this being processed and handled through any of our standing committees, or whether it's going to be held uh, only through the full committee of council. Um, I'm also interested in us having a conversation as a council as it relates to um, how we are going to interface with the uh, advisory commission and the timeline for the um, for that commission and how that commission have received some guiding principles from the council as to how they would operate and perform and, and interact with the council. Um, and I guess lastly, I think it's important that we talk about the staffing that we have and that we need to have in place to support our staff. Uh, I want to uh, recognize the fact that Megan uh, has been doing a fabulous job for us as an acting uh, uh, chief of staff, and I know that this is a huge additional responsibility for our staff in making sure that we have the resources. And I guess lastly is the consultant that we plan to bring in. Um, and the magnitude of this job. And I guess my question would be, if we had received a proposal like this of this magnitude um, from an outside source and we had to do due diligence to make this happen, what kinds of resources we would need to make this happen and whether or not we have done justice ourselves to limit the budget of $50,000 uh, to do the due diligence that we ultimately are going to be responsible for to make this happen. So I think those are just some of my concerns that I think the full body or a process by which the body makes sure. these decisions that I would ask that you would consider and help us in this process of working through means by which of getting this done. Thank you, Ms. Robertson. Um, some of those uh, very concerns are being discussed so that we can bring that back to council to begin um, uh, really finalization of process for ourselves, the staffing issues, the consultant, and I'm just going to ask Ms. Brown to give an update in terms of where we were or are with the independent consultant. So yes, and I will make sure that we get that onto our agenda to get consensus and agreement across this body for how we'll and proceed. And not to belabor the point, but I just met with the Planning Commission today, mm -hmm. and the Planning Commission has um, made a tentative decision, and I shared with them that I would discuss this with the Council this afternoon, of October the 16th of having a special meeting to have a public hearing and also make a recommendation on all of the ordinances that are before the Planning Commission to make recommendations back to Council. And they are planning to have that meeting on the 16th at the present time. Um, I informed them that we had not put together a schedule of how we were going to go through this review, but I wanted to put this out so that the Council can uh, as soon as possible, give them some guidance as it relates to our time scale, schedule and whether the 16th work in harmony with our process of review and making decisions as well. Thank you, Ms. Robertson. Thank and you. I will press for us to um, at certainly by our next meeting, which would be next week, to at least be preliminarily moving towards some decisioning about process, staff, et cetera, and this item as well. 
So, thank you. Ms. Gray? So how would that align with the commission recommendations that council has appointed? There is no, um, let me be clear, it does not uh, in any way mitigate or change the mandate that the commission has by ordinance. We have stipulated exactly. And we will, once that commission is finalized, I'm looking to sit with them with legal to talk about that. But then that becomes a part of our overall process. The commission uh, recommendation, the independent consultant, our meetings, any other uh, committees or subcommittees we want to have look at it. It's a broader discussion. So it does not in any way impact. Well, it would if the public hearing happens before those. But we've not agreed to, Ms. Robertson said that was what was proposed October 16th. I, I don't know, but I suspect that that is a little more aggressive than what we would be prepared for with what we have on the table as commission and as possibility of independent consultant. I can't speak, but that would appear to be the case. So this is not us signing off on that, but saying we sign off to have that discussion and be able to say something back because we know what we have already put on the table. Okay. Yeah. With that, I, Mr. Clark, we're going to move on to the discussion items. Um, uh, yes, Madam Chair, the first discussion item is the discussion item regarding General Assembly legislative proposals. Madam President. Mr. Angelesto. Thank you. Um, I know that we've, we were potentially segueing to legislative um, business, but we also have packets on the Navy Hill Advisory Commission. We do. And being that that's the topic that we've been discussing, uh, would it suit you to continue this discussion? I would be, uh, I'm not sure how... Yes, I would be um, absolutely willing to move that up uh, in the queue. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mr. Clark? Yes, Madam Chair, the next discussion item then will be the Navy Hill Development Advisory Commission membership. Okay. And so um, we have the chair coming forward, um, but we also uh, have the list uh, seven that has been submitted um, with the associated documentation. Um, it is uh, my um, my uh, inclination that what um, we're looking at here is receipt of the recommended recommended slate and all of the attached documents, resumes, letters, etc., applications for those seven. Then we will be able to also receive the all other applications that were submitted. Um, and I've asked the clerk's office to make sure we have those by COB tomorrow, such that when we return here on Monday, we could finalize the slate um, 
discuss, let me go back, review, discuss, and finalize that slate uh, for the commission so that it can uh, get underway in earnest uh, with its work, with the first meeting being opportunity to sit with legal, et cetera, to go through scope. So that's what we're looking at at this point. Ms. Gray, you, yes. Well, Ms. Gray, if you would, let me go on and get the list since we've talked about bringing that forward and get our chair's and vice chair's presentation and then just go from there talking about next steps. I just wanted to give some background on the legislation since there were some questions Absolutely. that came up. Okay. So it's been more than eight months since the original legislation was brought forward and um, being the person who put that legislation forward, there was specific language about expertise that we were seeking for the commission. So it's not just a general community member. We were looking for specific expertise. This is a very complex proposal. Obviously, um, we, are seek we as council in that document um, are seeking individuals with expertise in specific areas, and the legislation was written as such. So there were questions that came up about the specific appointees at the um, initial um, introduction of those names, and I just wanted to clarify that it's been almost nine months, enough time to conceive and give birth to a human child. So if there were concerns about language within the document that they should have been brought forward in this nearly nine-month period from the time it was introduced and adopted and then, again, um, amended within that document. Along the way, there were opportunities to make changes, as there always are with legislation. Thank you. I think that... Uh Certainly, the, in conversation with our chair and co-chair, we discussed the um, specificity in terms of expertise, went through that, but also emphasized the need for inclusivity and diversity, those kinds of things. So, um. uh, Thank you, Madam President and uh, members of council. As you know, the ordinance creating the commission was kind of unique in that it specified a specific skill sets that needed to be on this, and that included a large project experience. It included legal experience. I would add to that, uh, based on your earlier conversation, uh, the need for bond counsel actually on the commission as well as people with specific procurement backgrounds and understanding of the practicalities of procurement. It called for a local taxation and tax increment financing and special district experience, um, experience in entertainment and sport facilities, real estate, public finance, and local taxation uh, issues. The ordinance further required us, under certain timelines, to bring forward nominations for you to consider. And so we worked, um, Madam President, uh, with you, with the city clerk's office and the city attorney to vet names of people and to bring forward a slate of seven names for your consideration to round out the commission. Uh, those are in front of you. 
I can run through them if that would be helpful. Does every member of council have? <laughs> yes. Okay. Every member of council does have the slate. Okay. Yes. So with that, um, what I want to say, uh, Mr. Gurner, uh, Mr. Homer, thank you for the work thus far. Um, thank you in advance for the work, and it's monumental to be uh, done in this area. And uh, we received the slate. We will um, review and finalize at our meeting on Monday uh, after, and we've received the entirety, the seven uh, additional members and all of their materials, but also the other 24 and others that were submitted. And so at that time would review a um, decision on a final uh, recommended slate. So I, I want to say thank you in advance. We, we do appreciate that. So you know, we asked of a number of potential applicants, not just these seven, um, are you a resident of the city? Do you have any sort of conflict? Um, do you have the time to devote to this? And that's probably the most uh, important issue uh, here. We are envisioning uh, every other week work sessions of several hours. These would be open to the public, and there would be public comment at each of these public sessions. Uh, we've designated Mr. Gurner as our Freedom of Information Officer. We do have a website set up. There will be internal email that will be archived so that all the materials that come to us will be available to the public out there. And I do want to emphasize, as you discussed a little bit earlier, the importance of the balance of these skills. So, for example, we have on here someone who is an IRS analyst and who is an expert in nonprofit entities. One of the unique features about this development project is that it is governed by a nonprofit entity. So this is an issue that we need to understand. We have a bond attorney who actually was the director of the Virginia Resources Authority. The VRA is the largest conduit issuer of bonds uh, in the Commonwealth. We have an educator who was involved in a downtown redevelopment in Winston-Salem, so has practical experience uh, with that. We also have a healthcare professional who has set up large projects here in Richmond and understands the complexity of our, our community, the challenges of, of making those work. We also have a former cabinet secretary, and uh, we have an architect we really cannot undertake uh, an enterprise like this without an architect, uh, given the nature of the development proposal. So we encourage you to please look at the qualifications, the skill slots that these fit into. Uh, there was earlier discussion about the uh, consultant, the private consultant that you all will be engaging. I would, and I'm in the consulting business, Mr. Gurner is. Mr. Gurner oversees entertainment projects all across the U.S., He's very good at it. Uh, we have a set of volunteers who are prepared to give you probably half a million dollars of consulting assistance at no cost, and they're willing to devote the time. So we look forward to your speedy action so we can get started on your behalf. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, again, we greatly appreciate the effort to date and the work to date. Uh, this is not a minor undertaking, and we appreciate that you are committing to the long term in this with us. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, while we're on this item, I'm going to go on and ask Ms. Brown to give an update relative to the consultant uh, and where we stand with that. Uh, yes, so um, staff worked on drafting a scope of work with, I believe, before it went out, uh, council. It was sent to all of council. Um, we sent out the request for quote on Monday, August the 12th, uh, to 18 different firms and provided a two weeks for them to respond. Um, we did not receive any qualifying quotes. Um, we received one response. However, it did not comply with the quote requirements, and the cost would have exceeded the $50,000. So at this point, um, there are, I guess, some other options. Either we can revise the scope to be more narrow and send the quote out again to the firms to see if we can get maybe one specific aspect of the scope um, requoted. Or if council wish to increase the dollar amount, we could always look to go out and do an RFP. Um, but, or, of course, some other action that council may want to recommend, but that's where we currently stand. So I've asked Ms. Brown to take a look at the options and come prepared Monday to make recommendation because we really need to move forward in whichever direction. If it's going to be the same scope but more money made available or if we're going to just go to core elements of the scope, but to come back and be prepared to have that discussion on Monday so we can get closure on both of these items moving forward. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yes, Madam Ms. President. Mr. Hilbert. Yes. Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding here what's in front of me, but I do see a, a Navy Hill Development Advisory Commission nominee overview of uh, all the applications received, is that? You have a list of the 24. You don't have those that came in subsequent to? Subsequent to a deadline or subsequent to this being formed? Subsequent to the, uh, us, you know, subsequent to us putting back out that people, certainly we had the 24 to get to Right. Yes, and then subsequent to that, and I, the deadline, Madam or Mr. Clark, I'll ask you to speak to, but it was certainly prior to the meeting of the chair and uh, co-chair to review and discuss uh, okay, and recommend a slate. Were received. Yes. I guess what it's I'm... up to uh, prior to that time. Okay, because of the seven, I guess... I'm sorry here, of the, of the seven members nominated here, um, I only see, uh, I see uh, Mr. Gordon, Mr. Johnson, excuse me, Ms. Johnson, uh, Ms. Long, Ms. Sadler, um, and Mr. Walker's application are not in these 24. So I'm not sure that this is helpful to get the 24 if 
if the ones that were actually nominated are not on this list. So I wanted to make sure that you had everything that came in. So you will have 24 that came in and the additional that came in by COB tomorrow. Okay, that came in, I'm sorry, by uh, Ms. Cl Reed. close of business. Okay. No, no, you'll I'm have sorry. it by close of business tomorrow, tomorrow. the additional applications okay. that came in, so right. that you would then have the universe of applications as okay. you are reviewing in preparation for our discussion on Monday. Okay, great. Thank you. That clears it up. Moving on, Mr. Clark, to the next item. Uh, yes, Madam Chair, uh, the next item for discussion is the General Assembly legislative proposals. Hi there. Um, since our last meeting and the April 15th deadline for the submittal of your legislative um, Oh, excuse me, August 15th deadline for um, submittal of your legislative items. We've put each of the items in front of you in within buckets, if you will, that correspond to five strategic areas from your city council's recommended priorities for fiscal years 20 and 21. Um, just want to sort of give you an overview of, of what you're looking at and how that differs from the last time we spoke with you. Um, so we've removed from the list that you have in front of you today those items that do not require state legislation um, or state legislative action. We've then um, characterized and ranked the proposals um, under four different criteria. And then proposals that have come in since the last time we met, um, and that was since the August 15th deadline, are in front of you in the, um, in the proposals legislative booklet. The new ones are highlighted in blue, the ones that we haven't spoken of. So all city charter proposals are, paid, are found on pages 7 through 8. And as previously mentioned, uh, unless there's uh, support from both the council and the administration on these city charter items individually or collectively, uh, we really don't recommend moving forward with them through the charter bill process for the 2020 General Assembly session just because the time frame and the requirements are such of the things that you have to do. I'm not sure get there. But um, at our next meeting, subsequent to tonight, we're going to look forward to showing you your list um, and these items broken out into specific legislative requests and then legislative support positions or position statements. Madam Chair. Oh, I'm can, sorry, Ms. Gray. Yes. Can you specify which ones you don't recommend moving forward? I didn't catch that. No, we haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. Um, Would you both be so kind to state your name for the record as well? Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. I'm Laura Bateman and Ron Jordan with Advantage Strategies. And so we thought with, um, without further ado, Mr. Jordan would take you through the, the new items that have come in since August the 15th. 
Just to, Laura mentioned the, uh, that we divided these. We sorted them actually into four categories. Just to refresh your memory, category one were items only affecting Richmond city government. Category two are items affecting specific city neighborhoods or groups of constituents that are unique to Richmond. Category three are issues directly affecting other cities and counties or town governments as well as the uh, city of Richmond. In category four are issues that broadly affect a neighborhood or group of constituencies, constituencies within the city and they can, like those in category three but more so, can generate substantial support or opposition from a wide variety of groups. They're typically positions that the city council would uh, support but not necessarily lead. Uh, so with that as the background and one further comment on the charter issues, and the reason we would not recommend moving forward with them unless the administration and you all are of a like mind on them on specific items is because the delegation is going to push back, quite frankly, unless there's uh, unanimity on it. They're highly unlikely to carry them unless both the administration and council are on the same sheet of music on a particular item. Okay. So uh, you may remember at our last meeting, we spent a lot of time going through these. Ms. Not Mr. Jordan, could yes, you hold one second? We have a question, Ms. Lawson. Okay, so have any of these proposed charter changes been put in front of the administration? I'll defer to the president on that. Uh, the, at this point, the first uh, approach was to make sure we had all of the items, and this is the first time since we've met that we had everything in hand. And so then the next opportunity would be to sit down with the administration to determine just what you're um, suggesting across the entirety of the packet, but certainly those charter items. Okay. Yeah. We just, only had a partial list when we met the last time. Okay. Because um, some of these we've been talking about since I got put on this body in 2017. So I would, if we want to, you know, run it by the administration, I'm fine with that. But, I mean, some of these things I am not sure they will support, like the closed session one. But that is extremely important, and we've dealt with some issues regarding that. So I understand your situation, but... I think it's not that black and white, and some of these issues need more discussion. It, if there's consensus yeah. among us, you hear the, the we might have to reach out to our delegation and talk to I mean, they understand the crazy dynamic of our form of government. So you understand the concern? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Relative, not and specific, is, but overall right. in terms of the charter item. And as, and as okay. you indicated, uh, we received a few more after the meeting last time, so we didn't move forward. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, the president mentioned at that time that once everything in, she wanted to have us sit down with the administration and see where you could, could find common ground on some issues and see how you deal with the ones where you can't. Madam President. Thank you. Mr. Angelista. Um, so I think this also goes to process, but council, anytime we deliberate and make a recommendation, we have a body of nine that is open to public uh, monitoring and scrutiny. Uh, if we're going to have a discussion about this, I think it would be essential that the mayor or representative 
from the administration sit in the public sphere to have the debate or deliberation about these items and not just simply say, well, I disagree. I don't know that there's a veto authority of such. And from a process perspective, the administration, as far as I'm aware, often advances their own legislative agenda items that doesn't necessarily have to have the buy-in or support of the council. And that, to me, defines a difference of process, which I don't think would be fair to hold one body to a certain standard and not the other. Madam President, I would yes. say, in defense of the administration, that under the last two mayor, under the previous mayor and the current mayor, um, the administration's items have been included in the package, in the city's package. We haven't had any in runs in the last two administrations. Previous one, different. Thank you. Um, but I do want to make note of Mr. Agilesto's comment about having that discussion be more open, and I'm fine with that. I just want to make sure that we have the discussion, um, you know, once we finalized our packet. So we'll work on that. Thank you. Okay. Please continue. Ready? Okay. Uh, as I indicated, when we last met, we walked through each of these at uh, some length and in a fair amount of detail. Not going to do that again. We're just going to focus on the ones that have come in since then. Uh, and as Laura indicated, our next step will be to take these uh, and bring you back a list of those that we recommend go forward for action items or specific requests for legislation, and then those that we uh, recommend you include as policy statements. And on the first page there, you'll see an item from uh, Mr. Addison, who's been pretty quiet all afternoon. Uh, to authorize the city to implement a land value tax. Uh, currently, there are, there are three cities that ha have the ability to implement a land use tax. Fairfax, city of Fairfax, not Fairfax County, but city of Pocosin and city of Roanoke. Uh, you want to talk about that a minute, Mr. Addison? Yes, uh, thank you. The, this option is something that helps with the in increasing of uh, the taxes assessed to a certain property or parcel that might be um, desirable for development that's being sat on or squatted or held um, privately. And the purpose of that is we need to be incentivizing and encouraging development in our localities. It's also meant to be um, kind of a, a battle against blight. We have blighted properties as well. It's a tool and instrument to help push um, decisions in terms of getting properties back in our tax rolls or back in a livable condition for our community. The next item on page two, uh, a highlight in blue, is deals with. I'm sorry, with, uh, here, pardon me. Relative to that last one, Mr. Addison, what would I know? I think we have a hundred dollar fee or something like that on vacant land. How does this relate to that? Is uh, it a vacant lot or vacant? I'm sorry, vacant building. I think it's, it gives us more powers in which to com combat blights rather than going through the legal process of tax sale and waiting for things to get to the point where we're now pursuing it legally. It's a way of doing it through a tax increment that allows for advancing the conversation, maybe increasing the amount of delinquent taxes or other aspects that push that through the process quicker. So it's ways in which we see blighted buildings, or underdeveloped properties, we can push for another aspect. It's not just a dollar amount. It's related to the value, et cetera. Right. Do we have uh, what... Fairfax and Pocosin and Roanoke are 
Is this a percentage of the value and the tax or? From what I've seen, yes, that's how it's structured. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Pardon the interruption. Yeah, and as Laura said, in Roanoke's case, they wanted to do it to lower the tax. I'm sorry? Roanoke's case, they wanted the, the authority to lower the tax. If they made the improvements. Okay. Great. Thank you. Sure. Okay. The next item's on the next page, housing expungement. Uh, ask the city to support the expungement on, of unlawful detainers and writs that are dismissed by the court in landlord-tenant cases. Often, unlawful detainers or writ will show up on a prospective tenant's credit report that will cause the applicant to be denied uh, rental in the future. Okay. Next. Thank you, Ms. Gray. I think I missed the memo. Did something go out that said we could, could. submit more of these? Or we had there two not a dates. Deadline? We had two dates, the very first date, and yes, something did go out subsequent to that initial meeting, and that date was what, Ms. Brown? The second deadline um, was August 15th. I don't recall that, but I'm just wondering, with the limited bandwidth that our legislative representatives have, how effective is it to add to I think it's more effective to narrow what we're doing, not continue to add. That's just my observation. Okay. I, yes. I would suggest to you that that's where we get to the cutting on, on the next iteration is when we look at the items where you're going to actually ask them to take action on an issue versus expressing a policy statement right. of support or opposition to an issue. And you'll make that set of recommendations once we go through. This is the universe of the this list at this point, based Correct. on the deadlines that were given and that people responded to. Then uh, you'll come back doing your due diligence and advise us. Yes. Okay. See, Mr. Madam Hilbert? President, I'm sorry. You're right. Thank you. Uh, this uh, Category 3, can you remind me what that was of affecting other jurisdictions other than the city? Category three are issues that directly affect other cities, counties, or towns, while also substantially affecting the government of the city. Okay, so it is including other mm -hmm. jurisdictions. Yes. Okay, do we have a list, or maybe their list isn't uh, together yet, from either the Virginia Municipal, Municipal League or Virginia First Cities? I'd, I'd like to see if there's overlap yeah. on those to yeah, where we know we, those are... You know, VML has not area. finalized their list yet. Laura, you want to talk yeah. about First Cities? VML is in the process of um, finalizing their list, and Virginia First Cities will finalize their list at their October annual meeting in conjunction with the VML. Um, at, at, yeah, VFC will do theirs in conjunction uh, at the VML annual meeting in October in Roanoke. Um, but a lot of these that you see in blue are picked up, will be picked up either in Virginia First Cities, in Virginia Municipal League, um, in the Housing Opportunities Made Equal, um, the Virginia Poverty Law Center, because I think there's okay. even an item to pick up and support the legislative agenda of home, okay. for example. Okay, well, that October date probably doesn't fit within our time frame, but just something to and think if, of. And then as we work to finalize this list, um, 
if we know that it's going to be included in someone else's package, we'll tie it to that. We'll reference it to that. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. The we'll next item on that page uh, is new. Would we support authorization for localities to establish a landlord registry? Flipping over to page three, also new would be, um, although you've had this in your package in the past, would be to support additional state funding for the Virginia Housing Trust Fund. Now, there's a corollary to that this year that would uh, add support, uh, allowing some of that money to be used as matching funds to local governments that have developed a local housing trust fund, and also um, to support and as well as the purpose of that matching fund. So, I'm sorry, Madam President, this is to just set aside a portion of the fund, or is this to, I mean, I, I read that, but would we also want to make uh, these mandatory that you have a local match? Is that is that an implication of this, or is that just... I think it's just authorization, yeah. not, okay. not mandating. No, it was not meant to be mandatory. Great. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, and then the last item on that page would be support for the home um, legislative list, which we're working to obtain and need to know what's in it for sure. Uh, Madam President, um, and I've noticed this on Mr. a couple Atchel, of them, but I don't believe we have previously endorsed wholesale other organization legislative packets. You've done First Cities and VML, if I recall. And those are organizations that we're paying membership yes that's right. right so we pay to be a member of it therefore we're we have a seat at the table when they're adopting their legislative package but home as a nonprofit entity that we're not necessarily a member don't have influence on what their board is deciding I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to just do a wholesale adoption of what's on their legislative package I'm, I'm sure it's all good and I would personally support it but not having a list. Um, that's what my. That's why my note says, let's see what's on the list first. Okay, so you will provide that. And whereas the rest of these have a sponsor or a patron, this one doesn't, which even makes it more clouded and confusing to me to understand the impetus for this. I don't remember where this one came from, but that's... And the fact that it came after the yeah. initial deadline, it just... Okay. It's clouded in but we're, we're going to get the list, and we'll we'll, we'll call it. Thank you, thank you. Okay, page four, several new items there, and it, but uh, actually most of these, in one form or fashion, were in your package last year. Uh, support incentives for to deal with food deserts. Two items dealing with food deserts. There, one is incentives for entities willing to establish full service grocery stores in food deserts. Uh, the second is funding for the. Uh, Virginia Grocery Investment Fund, which would also address um, food deserts and the availability of healthy foods. The next item would be uh, to amend the state Medicaid plan um, to include dental and oral health services as co and coverage. Uh, I will tell you from having represented a Medicaid managed care provider that even though the state doesn't cover it, th this provider did under their plans because it saved them money. The key to your overall physical health, just a little health note here, folks, is what goes on in your mouth. Um, 
The next item is, uh, has been in there before. That's additional funding for mental health and substance abuse services uh, for a whole collection of things there. This was in your package last year. Um, wraparound trial services, support efforts to provide seamless, affordable, quality access. We're at-risk families. We're receiving a number of localities and school divisions will have support for increased wraparound services in their package this year. Uh, page five, living wage requirement. Uh, you debated this last year, but I don't think it made it into the package, was support adoption of a state policy requiring of state and local government employers to provide a living wage and encourage private sector employers to do the same. Uh, two support lists there, the Poverty Law Center and First Cities, same caveats there that we had on the others. Uh, bottom of page five, Create a, uh, this is not a new item for you, we've discussed this uh, during the last session, create a school construction commission to develop ways to fund, provide state funding for uh, school construction. Skipping over to page six, two items in the bottom there. Uh, the first was in your package last year, support amending state law to include sexual orientation as a protected job class. Uh, and. Housing for housing and, and employment discrimination. Uh, and the last item on that page would be support the designation of Juneteenth as a state holiday. And um, then we're into the uh, charter items. And there's only one new item there, and that's on the last page. Um, and it essentially would say amend the city charter to clarify the provision of legal services to the city by providing for three legal offices, one for the mayor, one for council, and, uh, and city agencies, and also a dispute resolution process to resolve differences when they can't agree. Imagine that, lawyers who can't agree. Thank you. <laughs> Questions at this point? So as Laura Mr. said, our next step, next step. Our next yes. step will bring you back. Uh, something that we can discuss and will be actionable if you so choose at that time. Thank you. So, thank you. Madam President. I'm sorry, Ms. Angelesta. Thank you. Just um, this latest addition to the city charter amendments uh, by Councilperson Addison. Um, Ms. Gray and I have a similar discussion request for separating out legal authority. This one's just a little more specific. Right. Perhaps in the the next round, we can talk about a way to bring those two we together. Can roll them up. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. We do that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Next discussion item, Mr. Clark. Uh, yes, Madam Chair. The final two discussion items for today are performance evaluations and Council Chief of Staff recruitment. Thank you. In terms of the performance evaluations, the information was forwarded to all members of staff along with timelines. And uh, given the, uh, the only feedback I received was from one of our appointees relative to our organizational chart, which um, I will look to modify and have um, more of a memorandum attached to speak to the collaborative working together of those um, entities. And so given that have not received any uh, objections, would like to proceed with the timeline to get underway 
the performance evaluations of our direct appointees with the modification, as I indicated, of the org chart that uh, was uh, suggested. Okay. Seeing uh, no further comment with that, the next item was Simulali sent out a uh, timeline for recruitment of council chief of staff and uh, have not received any uh, feedback on that. Would like to proceed with that. We have a lot coming up. Navy Hill, we have the budget, uh, and some of the items you referenced, Councilwoman Robertson, in terms of duties and responsibilities, and so would like to proceed with that item. The last item is the city attorney. Um, at this point, would like to look at um, requesting a recommendation for an interim appointment so that there can be overlap before the current attorney departs, but also so that whether the charter change happens or not, it is clear that both the administration and council want some things to change relative to legal counsel. And so I want to make sure that those get captured in the job description. Uh, and so would bring that back uh, to uh, council for review, but that would go on and move forward with that interim identification of an interim to bring to this body for review and approval. Seeing no... I'm sorry, here, relative, uh, Madam President. Oh, yes, one other item. We have... Um, Several things we put on to informal, so I'd like to ask that we move that start time to 3 p.m. Uh, we have uh, our Navy Hill Commission that we're going to be discussing. Going to get some more feedback relative to that independent consultant that we're looking at. We have a couple of closed sessions on there as well. And I think that is pretty much it. And presentation, I'm sorry. Yes, a presentation, participatory budgeting. So uh, seeing no objection, I would ask that we would start informal at 3 on Monday. With that, uh, uh, Mr. I'm sorry, I was Madam, coming. Yeah, yeah. Madam President. Yes. Does that mean that uh, docket review will begin at 2? Yes. Okay, great. And... Uh, not following exactly on the city attorney interim. Uh, we're going to make that appointment uh, through what process? Or? Um, I think that we would use the same process. That would not be that that would come to council, I think, is how we've done that in the past, ultimately. Okay. Yeah. And I guess before it gets to us, is there a process whereby we eliminate applicants, or I don't guess there's really applicants for this, but um, I guess we're just going to come to council with the consensus of who we might appoint, or? Right. We're talking about an existent employee okay. that the city attorney would be recommending as interim. Great. Yes. Okay. No, that, not ex external would require. No, we don't want to head down that yeah. road. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. With that... Um, I believe, Madam President. I'm, yes, Mr. Jones, head. I was about to say, I think with that, those are the last items for discussion, but I will bring back to any last 
comment. Yes, ma'am. I just had a quick clarification or would like a quick clarification on, uh, and maybe I just missed this, overheard it, or uh, didn't hear it correctly. Council Chief of Staff Recruitment, did you say an email went out? So um, the, a packet went out both in terms of performance evaluations, timeline, and um, template, but you should have also gotten a timeline and job description relative to council chief of staff. Emailed and provided at the last OD meeting. I know about the email for sure. Brandis worked to get that out. Okay, I, I if you did not, email. I will make sure that you get that. No, no, I have that information. I, I, I just didn't know if there was one subsequently that no. came after, no, no, after no. that one. Are, and, and just one other point of clarification, are we still having members on uh, search committee, if you will? Yes, absolutely. I will bring that back just as we have done in the past. This is not an individual um, activity. We will have check with members to see who's interested, external experts similar to what we're looking for, the same kind of search process. Right. Awesome. So both hands. With that, having no other business before this body, we now stand adjourned. Thank you.